Hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. You may want to grab those. Um, hopefully you have a, a Bible nearby. There's one in the seat pocket in front if you would like to borrow one of those uh, or have it on your phone or something like that. We are beginning a new series where we are going to be in the book of First Kings. Um, but before we get there to First Kings, I have to ask you a question. And the question is this. If you could wish for any one thing, what would it be? You get one wish, what would you wish for? Now, of course, there would have to be some rules. All the Disney fans know, right, that you can't ask for more wishes. You can't bring anybody back from the dead, and you can't make anybody fall in love. You guys with me on that? Remember those, those rules? Uh, but other than that, you could just wish for anything that you want. Um, it's kind of an interesting game or fun game to play. I dug around a little bit on different people's answers. Far and away, the most common response to that question has to do with money. People sometimes just wish, wish for a bulk sum. You know, I want, you know, a million dollars. I want a billion dollars. Some wish for, I just, I want a new car. I want a bigger house, those kind of things. Um, after that, you see people wishing for health. Uh, that's a kind of a common one that you see people wish for, uh, or just kind of a general sense of happiness you hear people um, ask for. But one organ organization has actually turned this question, uh, this idea, into an idea that has helped bring joy and hope to over half a million uh, childhood cancer patients. And I'm talking about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You guys familiar with the Make-A-Wish Foundation? It was so fun to do some research on that organization uh, today. It, actually, uh, it began 40 years ago um, when the parents of this little guy, uh, Chris, who had a childhood uh, cancer, they realized that he was likely not going to grow up and make it to his wish to be a police officer one day. And so they contacted the Phoenix Police Department where they lived. The Phoenix Police Department said absolutely. They made him an officer of the day. They gave him obviously the uniform. They let him drive the car. They even let him fly in the helicopter. It was like the highlight of this little boy's um, life. And the Phoenix PD did just an amazing job um, with that. Well, eventually uh, he, Chris, passed away. But the family said, you know what, that was such a big deal for us. We want to provide that opportunity for others. And so for the last 40 years, they have been allowing kids to make a wish. Um, some just wish for something simple, like a new puppy. Um, and you could see how that would bring a lot of joy. Others want to go a little bigger than a puppy. And so they wish for a unicorn. Um, and they do their best to make that happen. Um, some wish to be uh, princesses, and they do that. Um, others wish to be superheroes. This is Bat Kid. You guys remember Bat Kid? This was in our area. They did a parade for him in uh, downtown San Francisco. Huge deal, Bat Kid. By the way, I don't know. I think it's about five years ago, maybe a little more now. And Bat Kid is cancer-free these days. So that's a, a kind of a fun part of that story. Um, some wish for experiences. They want to be a fireman. Look at this little guy. He's getting sworn in with his hand on the uh, Bible. Um, some want to be an astronaut. And so NASA says, sure, uh, come on in. We'll see what we could do. Um, pretty much uh, this little guy was great. He wanted to make a video game, his own video game. So they brought him in, allowed him to make this video game. And in this game, you go around and you destroy the little cancer cells um, with your sword wherever um, you go. Almost every president has been a part of the Make-A-Wish for the last 40 years, all the way since Ronald Reagan, uh, like this little guy. Um, some want to meet athletes, and this guy wanted to play one-on-one -on -one with LeBron James, which seems more like a death wish than a, a, you know, a smart wish, but hopefully LeBron took it a little easy on him. I'm not sure. Um, 
Or this guy wanted to play golf with his hero, Jordan Spieth. One of my favorites was actually a 14-year-old Ashley Wagner. Um, Ashley is a twin, and when it came time for her make a wish, she decided she didn't want to wish for herself. She wanted to wish for her twin brother, and he wished that he could meet Steph Curry. So they're from North Carolina. Uh, Steph and Aisha brought him all the way out, spent the uh, weekend with them, and then on game day, invited him down on the floor to make them honorary captains for the Golden State Warriors, and it was just awesome. And so let me ask you again, what would your wish be if you could only have one wish? And I ask that because, as I mentioned earlier, today we are beginning a new series on the life of King Solomon. And we see that at the beginning of Solomon's reign, God gives him this extraordinary opportunity to ask for anything. Ask whatever you want, Solomon, and I will give it to you. We're going to dig into his answer and what that means for us in just a little bit. Uh, But before we jump into that, I want to remind you, if you've been around the church over the last several years, um, for a number of years now, we've been slowly but systematically working our way through the Old Testament story. So way back, if you can remember that far, in 2017, we began by studying the books of Genesis and Exodus. And at the very first page, the very first book of the Old Testament, we see that God speaks. And when God speaks, by God's word and God's, by God's power, everything comes into existence. And God says that it's good. And he creates humankind in his image, and it's good. And he places them in this garden. And though everything that God made was good, and they were in this perfect garden, still, do you remember what Adam and Eve do? They choose to rebel against God. They choose to say, we want to go our way, seek our own wisdom. And from that point on, sin enters into the world. And this is so important. From that point, the seeds of struggle between good and evil were planted in every human heart. The struggle between God's good and perfect plan versus humanity's sin is just always present. It's present in the story of the Old Testament. It's present in our lives. And this struggle is not only real, but we see it time and time again as we study the story of the Old Testament. So even in the book of Genesis, way back when we studied it, we saw that even the great patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, people like that, still have this inner turmoil that they wrestle with. It comes to the end of the the time of the patriarchs, and the, the people forget about God. The Hebrew people forget about God, and they find themselves as slaves in Egypt, and they're under the oppressive rule of the Pharaoh. And yet some of them remember God and cry out to him, and God hears their prayer, and he comes and he rescues them. He delivers them out of Egypt in this miracle uh, that he does, and yet the people do what? They come into the desert, and, and before long, they, they worship idols, and they they forget to trust and to obey God. And so God says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. A walk from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan really should take about 11 days. But, But in their disobedience, remember what happens? 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Finally, after 40 years, uh, one of the guys, Joshua, says, enough is enough. We are going to go in and we are going to take that land that God promised to us. And so Joshua is strong and courageous. And the people follow him across uh, the the Jordan River into the the promised land. And they conquer the land and things are going well. And and then you'll remember when we studied the book of Joshua, you come to the end of Joshua's life and it's kind of a high point. But almost right away, Joshua dies. And and the next thing we enter into is the period known as the Judges. And when we studied Judges in 
in Ruth, we saw this relentless cycle over and over again where the people forget about God and they reject God and it ends up being great calamity and trouble in their life. And so they, they are, they're hurting, they're, they're, they're suffering, and they call out to God. God in his mercy comes and rescues them. And you have this cycle over and over again for about 400 years. This inner struggle that's inside all of us. This inner struggle is what's keeping Israel in this cycle over and over again for 400 years. Finally, they say, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king of our own. Now, God is supposed to be the king, but they say, we want to be like the others. And so give us a king. And the very first king they have, remember, is Saul. Saul is physically very impressive, but his reign is a disaster. So after Saul comes who? The great King David. Now, David, we studied David's life last year. He's not as physically impressive as Saul, but his faith is strong and he has a heart for God. And yet inside even the great King David is this inner turmoil, is this struggle between God's way and his own ways. And we're reminded that, that as great as David is, this moral and spiritual battle within him reminds us that ultimately even a great king like David is not the king that we're looking for. We need a, a greater and a truer king. And, and that's why the promise that one would come in the line of King David that would ultimately be a once and for all king, Jesus Christ. And, and David's life even points to that. And so you see this turmoil in David's life and he does a lot of good things, but he also brings a lot of heartache and destruction to his own life, to his family's life, and even to the nation of Israel. And that little journey takes us to the start of the book of First Kings. And that's where we're going to be spending some time over these next few weeks looking at the words or the life of Solomon. So I invite you to open your Bible to First Kings, First Kings chapter 2, where we actually see David's last words. So David is on his deathbed at this point, um, and Solomon comes in, and David gets a chance to share one final a set of words with his son Solomon. And I ask you, what would you share in those times? What, what would you uh, pass on to those that come after you? This is what David says. First Kings 2.2. 2. He says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong, Solomon. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And so we'll call that kind of the start of the story of Solomon. And Solomon's career begins with this very clear choice. Solomon, when you trust God, when you walk in the ways of God, things will go well for you. You will prosper. Your life will, and the people around you will as well. But the flip side of that is when you choose to go your own way, not only it will lead to product problems and heartaches in your life, but for the people as well. And I want all of us to see that struggle so clearly because that struggle is inside all of us. And the choices that Solomon faced in a very real way, are the choices that you and I face this very day. 
So 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, we're just going to kind of tell you what happens in those two chapters. 1 Kings 1 and 2 is all about Solomon being established politically. There's some question about which of David's sons is going to come after him. And I imagine that 1 Kings 1 and 2 read like a kind of an episode of, of Game of, of Thrones because you have all of these things. You have, uh, you have infighting uh, among David's heirs. There's jealousy. There's deceit. There's backroom deals. There's a violent coup. This whole thing makes you think, really? Really, David, this is what comes out of your family, this, this dysfunctional family? And it kind of makes you feel better about your own family when you read it. But you think, what in the world? But, but ultimately, we see that, that David says, I want Solomon um, to be the, the next king. And so Solomon is established politically as the king. And that's important after a lot of fighting. Then you get to 1 Kings chapter 3, and this is where we're going to slow down um, for the rest of our morning, because this is where Solomon is established spiritually. And we see that from the beginning, this spiritual battle, as I said, is very real in Solomon. Uh, But Solomon's story, like the rest of the Old Testament to this point, is all about this struggle. Are you going to obey God and see the blessing or not? And so that brings us to the start of 1 Kings chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with verse 1. And we see that from the very beginning that this struggle is active in Solomon's life. 1 Kings 3 verse 1 says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So we see a couple things from the very beginning. Solomon's very first act that we read of is that he marries Pharaoh's daughter, right? He marries Pharaoh's daughter. Now, eventually, we're going to see Solomon marries 700 women, 700 wives. We're going to get to that and how crazy that all is um, in in a few weeks. But we see, most historians will tell you that Solomon didn't necessarily choose all of those wives, certainly out of love or or even, uh, it's not about sex. In many ways, it was about a political and a strategic and even a military decision. And the thinking went like this. If you marry the Pharaoh's daughter, when it comes time for Egypt to attack and try to kill you, they're going to be a lot more hesitant to do that because his daughter is a part of the family. And so if you think about it, it makes some strategic sense for Solomon to do this. But it goes completely against what God had said about marriage, for one thing, but specifically what it says to the ki- about uh, the king taking other wives like that. And so we see one of the first acts that's described to us is actually a direct uh, rebellion against God's law. Second thing we see in those, just those first few verses are this, that Solomon worships at the high places. He goes and he worships at the high places. And you may say, well, what, what's the big deal about that? What are the, the high places? Well, the high places uh, were places of, of, obviously, places of worship. There would be an altar, likely, at the top of a mountain. You would be closer to God that way, I think some of the thinking was, or at the top of the hill. And it was mostly where the Canaanite people would go and they would worship their idols. So they would set up these high places and there they would go and they would worship Baal or the, the Asherah or Molech or, or some idol. 
And so this was before the temple was built, and so there wasn't one set place for Israel to go and worship. But we know this. God had specifically told them, you don't worship like all the other Canaanite religions. You don't worship idols, and you don't go to the high places. And so you see, the point I'm trying to get to is this turmoil is in Solomon between doing what's wise and following after his own ways. And so really what we're going to get to is the wise choice that he makes. But I want you to see that turmoil because that turmoil is in all of us, isn't it? Well, let's keep going with the story. Verse 4, we see this. It says, The king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. There's the, the thing. Make a wish, Solomon. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant David, or made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and and wrong for your for uh, for who is able to govern the people of yours these great people of yours so it's not exactly a genie in a, a bottle but god appears to solomon in a dream and he gives him this once in a lifetime deal solomon asks for whatever you want and solomon makes this great choice because he doesn't ask for a pile of money he doesn't ask for fame and fortune and all those kind of things he says god give me wisdom give me wisdom Specifically, he says, give me a discerning heart. So what we see here specifically is that Solomon is asking for a godly wisdom, a godly wisdom. Actually, you have the exact same story in the book of Second Chronicles, and it says that Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge. Now, in the New Testament, uh, we see that there's a real distinction between what Paul calls godly wisdom and he calls it the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the age or man's wisdom. So there's, there's, there's smarts out there. There's knowledge out there that's not necessarily godly wisdom. But Solomon is asking for this discernment or this godly wisdom. What he asked for specifically is this discerning heart. What's fascinating is literally what he asks for is a hearing heart. He says, God, give me a heart to hear ultimately from you. The Hebrew word is the word Shema. He asked for a Shema heart. Now, if you've been around the Bible a little bit, and even if you haven't, maybe you've heard this term, Shema. The Shema was actually based on uh, the most famous scripture in the Old Testament, a part of the law. The Jewish people made it their biggest prayer. Lord, it says, uh, uh, Hero Israel, Hero Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's the beginning, that's the foundation of the law, that you would have that Shema, hearing sort of, of thing. And so, so, so Solomon asked for this Shema, hearing, discerning kind of heart. In a way, he's saying, would I be someone who builds my life on hearing your voice and knowing God the way that you would have me to go? Now, of course, the best wisdom is always going to be found in hearing and following God's Word. When God's Word is clear on something, it, it's easy. You want to follow that. You want to do those things. 
But let's be honest, we also know that there are a lot of situations, there are a lot of things in life where God's Word doesn't explicitly address that situation, right? It doesn't address directly that issue in the Bible. That's where godly wisdom comes in. So that's coupled with being filled with the Spirit. The Bible talks about uh, people that are followers of Christ are filled with this Holy Spirit. So we actually have God's wisdom inside of us. But still, it's something we have to choose. It's something we have to say, yes, we want to go that way. The most common way to find that kind of wisdom, as I said, is to, to spend time in God's Word. The more we immerse ourselves in God's Word, the stronger that instinct is in us to do the right thing. Godly wisdom is kind of that, that just that instinct, that hearing kind of voice that says, I know the right thing to do, and I'm going to have the courage to do that. Now, so that's what Solomon asks for, and almost immediately God, God grants him that. Um, the, the classic example of this, and we, you see it in this chapter, is two women come to Solomon. And you remember the story, the Bible says that they're actually two, two prostitutes and they live in the same house and they both have little babies that the same age. And in the middle of the night, it's dark there, there's no electricity, of course, and, and one of the women rolls over and suffocates the baby and the baby dies. And so in the middle of the night in the cover of darkness, she takes her deceased baby and she swaps it out with the living baby and she takes that, that one. And the next morning they wake up and the, the one mom says, well, no, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not my baby. That's your baby. My baby's th- this one alive. This is your baby. And back and forth they go. This is mine. This is yours. And they fight it out. Now I imagine they say, okay, well, we're going to have to take it to court. And so they go to the lower, lower courts and they start working this thing out. Nobody knows what to do. Who do you believe in this situation? So finally, it worked himself up all the way so they're going to go and appear before King Solomon. King Solomon takes these women into his chambers and, and he says, I know the exact thing to do. It's a little creepy what he says, but he takes a sword. He says, give me a sword. And then he tells the sword up and he says, I'll cut the baby in two and then you can each have part of the baby. If, by the way, if you're like a lawyer or a judge, this is not like advice for what you should do in life. But in Solomon's situation, it seemed to really work because the woman says, no, 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 don't do it. Just give them to the other one. And of course, that's when Solomon knew who the real mom was. And the people were there said, that's brilliant. We've never seen anyone wise like that. It's the same kind of thing that we hear people say about Jesus, the one who would come ultimately and be the true king that we would need. They would listen to him teach and they would hear his words and they say, what kind of man is this? What kind of man speaks with such authority and such wisdom as Jesus Christ? Well, Solomon asked for wisdom and God gives it to him. And I want to point out some things about how he makes this request. Because if this same decision is something that we could face, what can we learn from this as well? So just some different ways that, that Solomon makes this request for wisdom. And the first one is he asks with humility. Solomon asks with humility. You remember in verse 7, he says, I'm only a child. Solomon was likely around 16 at this time. Sorry, 16-year-olds, mostly they seem to know everything. Uh, But Solomon at this point says, I'm only a kid. I don't know anything. God, I'm going to need your help. And and so that's so wise of him, so smart of him to do that, not only to ask in that way, but to to feel that way. Because the Bible tells us that God actually comes near and will always come near to those that are humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we're proud, we actually set ourselves up uh, almost as enemies of God. But that humility that says, uh, uh, God, I, I need your help. 
Now, this is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of us because we usually think, you know, it's the smartest person, it's the person with the most experience, the person with the most knowledge, and that can be helpful. But the truth is, a lot of times, if we're just depending on our own smarts, our own, our own um, you know, experience, our own, all those things, we can tend to forget about God. And I can't tell you how many times I've experienced this in my life. Time and time again, someone will come to me and, you know, I'll have some responsibility. Maybe it's a ministry responsibility to give a message or to do something. And I think, I got this. I've done this a dozen times before. I know what to say. I know what to do. And you go and you do that thing kind of based just in your own wisdom and your own experience. And maybe it's fine. Maybe you get through it. But it doesn't seem to have the the power of God in it. And there have been other times, I can't tell you how many times this has happened, where I felt so inadequate. And I felt afraid. I felt not sure what to do and what to say. And in those moments, you cry out to God. And God's power seems to come in. Sometimes you don't even feel like you, I feel like, I haven't even done my best. But God's power comes in. And you see, we don't want people to look at us and say, wow, look how smart they are. We want people to look at us and say, wow, what an amazing God they have. And so that's the difference Solomon approaches with humility. It reminds me of what Kevin DeYoung says. Kevin DeYoung says, if you think you are really smart, you are on the pathway to becoming a fool. But if you feel, and if, but if you feel like you don't have it all together, you have begun down the path of becoming wise. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel like I need this more and more these days. These last 20 months or however long it's been, it seems like wisdom is harder to to come by. I was thinking just this past week, there are probably four or five either experiences or decisions that I had to make or people that I was talking to and trying to come alongside where I thought to myself, I, I don't have the words for this. I don't, I don't have the words to comfort the people and in, in the hurt that they're going through. I don't have the wisdom to make this decision. And you may say, come on, Pastor Glenn, you're the one who's supposed to have the words, right? That's what you're there for, to have the words or to know what to say. But I've thought, God, I'm at a loss. I need your help. And here's the thing. God is near to the humble. And the way we immerse ourselves and become people that hear and walk in God's voice starts with saying, God, I need your help. And so I surrender myself. It's the one of the wisest things that Solomon ever does. That temptation is going to come back to him to depend on himself time and time again. But in that moment, he gets it right. Second thing that Solomon does is he not only asks with humility, but he asks putting God's kingdom first. So his request is not for wisdom so that he could be recognized as a great king. He wants to be great, uh, but he doesn't ask so that he could be recognized as great, but so that God could be recognized as great. Actually, we did kind of that little survey of overview of the Old Testament story. It's actually the exact opposite that we see in Genesis 2 and 3, where Adam and Eve want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they want to do that not so that God's kingdom can be glorified. They want to do it so that they can be thought of as smart. And that's that's the the difference there. But Solomon prays and he says, Lord, he says, I want to do a great job for you. I want to see your kingdom be great. You know, this is the kind of prayer that, that I pray regularly for, well, for myself and my family, but also for this church. I pray, Lord, Make, make, make this church great. Make the people that knows how to love each other and 
come along families and help people grow in their faith, to reach our neighbors, to reach our, our, our community, to share your love with the whole world. Lord, make this church great. Now, the deal is you can pray those kind of things for God's glory. We've we got to be careful not to twist that around. It's never about us. But we see when Solomon gets it right, that's what he does. He says, I want your kingdom to thrive and your king, your name to be made great. Third thing that he does is Solomon uh, requests uh, asking and believing and knowing that God can and will answer uh, that prayer. So Solomon believes, and, and his, his deal is, God, you've done it in the past for my father David. You made these promises, so I know that you'll do it again. God can and will answer his prayer, and that's exactly what happens. So even though there's that battle, that's raging inside Solomon between good and evil. It's ever-present. In that moment, he makes a life-changing choice to choose wisdom. And he says, God, you said you will give it to me, and so I choose wisdom. What do you choose? What do you wish for? This is the way the rest of the story goes. We're up to verse 10, and it says this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, Since you have asked for this wisdom, and not for long life or wealth or for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering judgment, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and a discerning heart, so that there will never, so that, so there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So Solomon's uh, one wish is not to be a superhero, not for a unicorn or anything like that. He says, I want wisdom. And God answers it. And God answers it. And that brings us to kind of the so what of this story. And the so what is this, is God offers you and me wisdom still today. The same promise that was made to Solomon, I believe, is actually made to us as followers of Christ today. Now, I can imagine there's some cynics out there. I, I, I know there's some cynics out there because I'm usually one of those cynics. It's really easy to hear a story like this and think, hey, that's a you know, nice little Bible story. It's cool for Solomon and you know, these, this Old Testament deal, but it, it seems really far removed from my life. I'm not a king. God doesn't appear to me in dreams. You know, I live in modern times. I don't live in ancient times. So it seems like this is kind of a one-shot deal um, for Solomon. But I want to tell you just the opposite is true. Because actually, in the New Testament, you see almost this same kind of thing promised to God's people. Look at James chapter 1, verse 5 up there on the screen. This is what James writes. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And so he says, I have the opportunity to choose God's wisdom, but it starts with asking. If you ask God, he will grant that wisdom. It talks about, you know, you got to ask and not doubt and not be tossed back and forth. But, but he says, I'll give you wisdom. That wisdom is found by immersing ourselves in God's word, but it starts with putting God first and saying, I want to be a, a hearing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of person. In fact, let me just close with a, a couple of verses that I think are really important um, on this one, one from the words of Jesus and one from the words of Solomon himself. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, is kind of talking about 
wisdom in a general sense. And he says this. He says, the first thing you do is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he said, all these things will be given to you as well. So in other words, here's your part. You seek after me and my kingdom and I'll take care of giving you all the other stuff. You see the same kind of thing brought up from Solomon who experienced in his own life. And in Proverbs chapter three, he famously says it like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So in both of those verses, it's very clear. There's our part and there's God's part. Our part is to seek first the kingdom. Our part is to trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. God's part is I will direct your paths. God's part is I will give you everything else. But there's that battle within us And the question is, which are we going to choose? Well, let's close here with a a moment of prayer. And I just ask you to maybe kind of close your Bible, put your things aside, and let's just take a moment of quiet before God. Because I imagine your life is kind of like mine, and there's a number of different situations and a number of different relationships and a number of different places where you could use God's wisdom So I want to just take a a few moments for us to pray quietly and to trust God's word. Because James says that if anybody asks, Lord, that you grant us wisdom. And so we want to be people of faith that come to you asking for wisdom. And so just in the quiet of your seat there, maybe there's a decision that you're facing. Maybe there's a situation that you're in. Some scenario where you don't think you quite know the right thing to do. Would you just quietly ask God for wisdom and and his direction on those things? Ask for a discerning heart to choose what's right and wrong. And certainly there's some relationship in your life where there's some struggle. Would you bring that person or those people to your mind? And as you think about maybe a relationship that you're stuck in or something that's broken and you don't know how to repair it. You don't know the next move to make. You have a God who promises wisdom. So as you think about that relationship, would you just quietly ask God for his wisdom and his direction in that scenario? Oh God, we need your wisdom. And then finally, maybe there's a, some ministry opportunity, something that you think that God's calling you to do. Maybe it's to, to be involved in some ministry. Maybe it's to give generously. Maybe I don't know what it is, but God's asking you to take a step of faith and you don't know the right thing to do. Just in the quiet of this moment, would you bring whatever that is as you ask God, what do you want for me? And will you ask for wisdom for that prayer? Father, make us a discerning people that we would know right and wrong and then give us the courage to follow up on those things. Make us a Shema kind of people that love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we believe that when we trust and we seek you that you will take care of everything else. Make us wise, Lord. Give us your wisdom for each scenario, for each relationship, for each opportunity so that you would be glorified. We humble ourselves and we say we need your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.